Hi, and welcome to Series 5, Episode 4 of Canyon Conversations, powered by the Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley, and I'm one of the team who bring you these podcasts each week. In this series, Saf will be talking to some of the business people he's met and worked with in his 23 years at the heart of the West Midlands business community. In today's episode, we hear the second half of Safraz's chat with Graham Hastings Evans of the NOCN Group. In the second part of their conversation, they explore the state of play for the skills environment in more depth. They look at the speed of change and the current challenge for skills to keep up with the future needs for the economy when policymakers continue to plan for an economic past. Not only do employers, governments and training providers need to adopt more dynamic approaches in order for young people to leave college both with more resilience and the right skills, but also support the workforce of today, 80% of whom will still be working in 10 years' time. So just how do policymakers, employers and skills providers tackle such an important economic challenge? Let's pass over to Saf and Graham. I can't remember a period in which I think there is so much change taking place in terms of our planet and yeah. how it operates yeah. and what we need to do. And that's going to be true for another 20 years. Now, I'm not going to be around for another 20 years. Well, you know, so I'm probably not working. Hopefully, we'll retire. So I'll semi-retire. Um, my wife keeps saying, you'll never retire. <laughs> when you're well, yeah. Probably not yeah. there, but I'm not necessarily full-time. We're all going to have to learn that we almost need training every six months or everything's changing. Yeah. Chat. GPT, I yeah, now use. Yeah, well, that was yeah, not so long ago. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, what is that? Yeah, yeah. Chat line? No, no, no. no, no. Um, and we're all going to experience that all the way through. Even your lowly bricklayer, <laughs> uh, you might say, yeah. it's going to affect all sorts of jobs. And that change we've all got to cope with. I think that's another thing that worries me is that the educational systems that we've got and the skill systems, the programs like the T levels and the uh, apprenticeships. GCSEs, A-levels, university degrees, all of that, their curriculum are fixed, they're generally old, and it's not easy to move. They're not fit for purpose in this dynamic micro-credential world, uh, and it's interesting that debate. I've been in a couple of international conferences, and in fact, I've spoken on a few, and there's quite a lot of us realise that the world of skills development is about small bites now. Short, sharp. Short, sharp, modular. Courses, yeah. yeah. Policymakers aren't in that space Policymakers are designing two-year-long T-levels, which are out of date before they've even got them started. And we've got to start so, tackling uh, that issue. Yes. So that's a figure of speech. So it's like learning at 11 o'clock and applying at 12 o'clock, so in a way. So, yeah, it is, you, you know, yeah. so it's quick application. Learn as you go along and, and sort yes. of adapt and so forth. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and I, I think the big challenge for us is to upskill the existing people in the economy. You know, it's a simple bit of maths. The workforce in 10 years' time, yeah. 80% of them will be the people that are working today. Because so you only so change 2% each year. So 2%. Each year. 2% a year. Yeah, that's okay. people coming in, people because retiring. The school, the, the school leavers. And school leavers, retirees. Yeah. It's about a 2% change every year. If you want a completely new workforce that's got completely different It'll skills in 10 years' time, you've got to train the existing workforce. That's more important and what you train the people coming in. But so the government has almost got the reverse th thinking. Yeah, they focus very much the, on, the, on, on the start. 16 to 19 yeah. and the start. And they are important. Don't get me wrong. They are. It's really important that we've got an but education system that 
provides people into the workforce, into the economy that have got the basic skills to then go into lifelong learning, because that's what they're going to have to do. I'd like to see a lot more emphasis on the soft skills, the employability skills, the ability to manage risk, resilience, yes, uh, and all of those, which many of us older members of the workforce in more senior positions, one of the things we constantly talk about a lot is our concerns about the resilience of young people coming out of school and, and their lack of that. employability skills. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd like to see more emphasis on that, yes, and less worried about whether we got the T-level quite right, but focus on the work, workers that are there that whose jobs are going to fundamentally change or whose jobs are going to completely disappear and morph into a completely different job. Yeah. That, to me, is the big priority in so, terms of skills. Absolutely. So as a nation, we've really got to do more with the people that we've we have yes in the system and yeah. you know you touched on you know, with your example earlier on with the life experience that you had where there are many people and i i forget the figure but you know you're talking probably a third who are not even at level two within the uk and you know that's that's astonishing and you know it's it's, it's upskilling those individuals okay. reskilling those individuals so operationally the people who are sort of hands-on ground level you've got You've got something, yeah. the estimates are about 9 million that haven't got anything from completely illiterate up to yeah. you know, not, not really satisfactory levels of maths and English. There's and we're not alone in some of these problems. I mean, if I look at the experiences in other countries, I think you, you go to the European countries, they've got similar problems. You know, They've got apprenticeship systems, they've yeah. got skilling systems that have got their problems. Yes? Yeah. Uh, and they're struggling with the idea that the world is changing into micro-credentials and modular learning and, and, and much more agile changes Blended. to people. So we're not alone in facing those problems. We are probably one of the worst in terms of maths and English outside of India. Obviously, there's yeah. a very high uh, yeah. a high proportion of illiteracy, illiteracy. in India. That, that is a major problem that, that particular country has got. But looking in the European countries, we aren't particularly brilliant at maths and English, although we are improving, and I, I, I have to say that. I think we've still got a, a long way to go, and we can be a bit complacent. You've got a banner behind you of green yeah, skills. Green skills, yeah. Green skills. Yeah, absolutely. And um, green skills are really important. We've got to create an economy that is net zero yeah. compliant. It's going to be quite a massive change. Although, as a country, we've made really good progress on our proportion of power generated through uh, recycled renewables, yeah. and that's, that's good. We're not doing very well on skills uh, in terms of getting the workforce up and running for a net zero economy. And I, I get a bit frustrated with, you know, we're going to be world leaders in green skills. Well, Modi's already done it two yeah. years ago. Yeah, so India, India, is, India is, is leading is the at way. At least two years, well, in Scandinavia and other and countries. Are, other countries are way ahead, way ahead of us in terms of green skills. And we've got this complacency that because we're good at renewables, that's the problem fixed. And it's not. We're just not. We're not getting to grips with green skills anywhere near as much as we need to. And we are falling behind. So, th so that's a big challenge. As a country, we have a vision-based implementation, would you say? It is. Yeah. It is. And we've got some fantastic engineers. Yeah, we've got, we've got a target. Scientists. So there's a target. There's a vision there. Yeah. Well, we've got the people, you're saying, as yeah. well. We've got the people. We've got some brilliant people. Um, I, I suppose it's perhaps a British. We used to say this about the Americans and us. This is, yeah. uh, you know, 
back in the 60s, 70s, that the British would develop something, you know, really good science, yeah. fantastic, yeah. but couldn't implement it, market it, and sell it, <laughs> and the Americans would. The it, great we, inventing, isn't it? Is that yeah. James, um, Jason, we're Dyson almost like that again. Yeah. We're yeah, really yeah. good at doing some of this stuff, and we've got some fantastic scientists, some fantastic engineers, and, and but we just can't actually then properly implement it, roll it out and make it a reality across the world. That's the problem we seem to have. And we do need to try and overcome it because some some people are really good. It's certainly the civil engineering part of the construction industry is very, very highly thought of across okay. the world. Okay. Um, I'm a chartered engineer. Yeah, It's the same institute in India. It's the same, my qualifications recognized across the planet awesome. because of the standard of yeah. it. I went to work abroad in Europe and all of, all those other places because British civil engineering was seen as one of the best it's in the world. Transportable and, and, and transportable, recognized. same skill, doesn't yeah. need the localization in, yeah. in quite in quite that way. So we are good at certain things, but on green skills, we just don't seem to be able to get our head around it, and it's quite sad. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's frustrating. It's but frustrating. If we break that down a little bit, I mean, you've got the construction side, you've got the engineering aspect of it, you've got the manufacturing yeah. part of it. I mean, are they a little bit aligned, or are they, you know, no. there's a little bit of no, no, no. Yeah, we're quite fractured uh, in that sense. Yeah, no silo. Yeah, right. silo. And I think we've got barriers in terms of moving things forward. And I'll give you an example: modular construction of housing. I said I went to Denmark when I was nineteen. Yeah. So that's quite a few years ago. Yeah. You can tell from the white beard it wasn't <laughs> yesterday. And I worked on a massive project to build a whole suburb of Copenhagen. That's like a town, little town for about twelve thousand people. It was made in four factories, and we pieced it all together on yeah. site. I've never seen anything like that. Yes. Yeah. And do you know what? I still won't see anything like that in Britain all these years later. But we've been talking about it. We've you? been talking about it forever. If you go to uh, Scandinavia, North America, your know, houses will arrive on flat packs, the just, IKEA house. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've got yeah, friends in Sweden. Yeah. I've been recently been on yeah. holiday in Sweden. You know, her house was flat packed. Right, boom, boom, put it up. Just fix yeah, it up. Fix it up. So it, it, there's nothing new and there's nothing difficult about it. Here, we've got companies that are trying to do those modular concerns, and they're closing down because there are so many barriers for them so things are not policy is not joined up and we don't seem to get to grips with it somebody's yeah. trying to do modular housing but if they can't sell that type of housing because the mortgage companies won't pay mortgage. for it the insurance company won't pay for it the banks don't like it the planners in the council don't, don't want to give you planning permission yeah. building all of these sort of barriers in the way yeah. they don't succeed and nobody's done anything to do anything about those barriers i've seen a good example singapore's uh, got a planning rule 65 percent of everything you build must be done off-site by off-site manufacturing techniques okay otherwise you can't build it and of course then that forces people to mm -hmm. do we've got nothing like that in the uk so they've got a target so, it's like uh, it's yeah. like the target that we have sometimes for uh, so you know, i think, social, it's, social I think it's not just a case of training people we need to have a sort of wider view helicopter view yeah as to green skills therefore what are all the barriers that are in the way and what do we need to do and government can do that but they're not minded at the moment okay. or okay. perhaps they don't realize it i don't know so graham you touched yeah. on you know we're doing a decent job on renewables uh, uh you, know, you know what's what's working for us in terms of the skills you know if you were to do a, a state of the nation of our skills uh, arena what's working what's not what needs a bit of refining and i think we have done some good things yes yeah. over the last 10 years i think uh, trying to improve the standards of occupational standards and the training behind them and the assessment of you know, the apprenticeship standards of what they've tried to do uh, the standards themselves there's been 
that's been good. The degree apprenticeship move has been, I think, a really good idea. Um, so they've been good success stories. The problem is there's not enough funding for enough apprentices. Yeah. So that's a problem. But the actual es essence of the occupational standard is generally good. Positive. Yeah. Except it isn't flexible enough. It isn't flexible enough to cope with change because it was never modularized. If you mm. built it in modules, you could start to do things about updating for green skills easily. Yeah. Hong Kong did that. In Hong Kong, they had about 200 standards for construction. They were all modularized. So when they needed to bring in digitization in their case, yeah. they just rippled it through dead easy. We can't do that because we never built them as modules. So we need to rebuild them as modules so we can easily update them. But basically, that's been a, that's been a good thing. The bad thing is, we or some of the bad things is <laughs> some of the bad things are we we don't have the right funding. So so the numbers of apprentices are now nearly a quarter of what the government hoped they would be the target, ten yeah. years ago. Yeah, yes, right. in terms of, and I don't mean starts. As an employer, I'm not interested in starts. Yeah. I'm interested in how many finish and yeah, come into the workforce. Of the, yeah. the completions of yeah. the thing that matter. So so we're just not completing enough people because there's not enough funding. And although the government, I thought it was a good idea to bring in an, a levy, and I do believe in levies. I think levy needs to be both training and apprenticeships, even though you might sort of say X percent's got to be apprentices, X percent's got to be uh, for uh, updating the existing workforce. So I can understand that. There's got to be enough money to do it all, yeah. and there's, there's just not enough money. The other thing that has been negative is through devolution, we fractured our system. Um, we now have four different occupational standards okay. for the same thing. So a qualification for a bricklayer in England and Wales and yeah. Scotland and Northern Ireland different. are all different. I'll go back to India. Yeah. There's more people working construction yeah. in India than the whole of our population. Yeah. There's 33 <laughs> states now that yeah. keep breaking them up and creating, creating more space. Yeah. They've got one occupational standard. So if India can have, as, have a country of 1.3 billion, can have one up. occupational standard across the we? whole of that country, well, there's even different local languages. Yeah, If they can, they can do that, why do we think we've got that for? So that's a real negative. The funding regimes have got more and more complicated, and industry want those to be simplified. So that's a negative. And the T levels are a bit of a mixture of good and bad. Some are good and some are not. They do have some potential, yeah. I think, but they've got to be aimed at higher roles. So you can't aim at a level three T level at a level two job. Okay. It's got to be a level four, level five, or level six job right. or in, you know, into higher education. Yeah. So there's some good things and some not so good things. We haven't taken industry with us in all cases. Higher technical qualifications. Many in industry haven't got a clue what they are, you know, sort of invention of the government. And the industry's um, so supposed to be at always the brought, brought them along with us. As a system says it's employer-led, but it's not, is it, is it's it really, not strictly yeah. employer-led. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's got employer engagement. It's not really that employer-led. Um, yeah. But there's some good things. I wouldn't want to see uh, uh, um, degree apprenticeships disappear. I'd like mm. to see them improved. Mm. I'd like to see T-levels improved. I'd like to see uh, apprenticeship standards improved. So some of the things that you you wouldn't want to throw you wouldn't want the ba throwing out the baby with the bathwater, yeah. uh, but I think we need change, and I think we need a common skill system right the way across the UK that is much easier for so SMEs bit, and everybody else to work in. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of reform, a little bit of updating, just yeah. in terms of you know yeah. what what yeah. works. Okay, well, what's your just general take in terms of the apprenticeship levy? I mean, there's been some positives and some areas where 
Yeah. It's got to reform. Okay. We've got to reform it. We yeah. do have to reform it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know there's probably not going to be a reform of it yeah. uh, this side of a general election, but it must reform. Uh, we do need a levy that is both training for upskilling the existing workforce and for apprenticeships. Now, whether you have two levies for two different purposes, could do that, or you have one levy where it's compartmentalised. You can only spend you, you've got to spend a minimum percentage on each or whatever. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a technicality, but we do need to reform the levies. Uh, and in construction, there are three levies. And, and that does drive people mad. Yeah, it's understanding that and navigating. <laughs> and and I think the way we're devolving there's three levies in England. In England, yeah, yes. There's different funding arrangements in Wales. There's different funding arrangements in Scotland. There's different funding arrangements in in Northern Ireland. There are different funding arrangements through devolution in England. You know, the different mayoral authorities are taking different approaches, and and employers again more and more unhappy with a. Uh, an increasingly more bureaucratic, unresponsive skill system that's building barriers. I get employers come to me and say, well, I've got a different qualification. <laughs> if my member of staff's home postcode is in Carnarvon, yeah. I'm, I'm going to quote you one, yeah. I've got to do something completely different to the one that's in Chester. Yeah. And I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. No. And uh, a lot of people work across these that's boundaries quite there. easily. And, yeah. uh, and I, I've heard a similar case uh, in, in England where somebody is in the East butting up against West Midlands yeah. and the employer is saying, I can get funding for that if my member of staff has got a West Midlands postcode where they live. But then I've got people working here in East of England, yes, right butting on it. And I can't get it. And they're getting very frustrated about things like that. And so, that's because we haven't, I believe in devolution, yes but it's devolving in the right way and the most efficient way, and I don't think we've done that. Yeah, it's, it's complicated to it's navigate, complicated. to navigate. you know, for, for people who are in the sector, let alone yeah. employers. And, yeah. and if the objective is to have employers at the heart of and driving this, it's, it's just too complicated. Simplification yeah, is, is. is needed. Um, and it's got more and more complicated um, over the last 10 years. And if you think about it, yeah, yeah, with all the combined authorities and you yeah. know, the funding there and, and all the restrictions. And I welcome that. that. Yeah, I actually welcome the idea that a combined authority can add value, yes? And it's great if they add value. Yeah. It's when they add another level Layer. of complexity of yeah. bureaucracy yeah. and put people off. So it's adding value while not putting up barriers. Unfortunately, it's probably not okay. how it's perceived. It's, it's seen as more and more bureaucratic barriers than added value at times, yeah. I mean, NOCN is, is sort of a market leader, well-known within the construction construction sector, and you are dominating in, in, in that field with your, you know, with your acquisition that you've made and also with your, with your brand out there. And you touched on it as well that, you know, construction companies, you know, some are closing and, uh, and, and there's a yeah. lot more of that. I mean, what, what yeah. are the pressures that the construction sector is, is facing? The, the, you know, there's a, there's a decline in demand in certain parts. Um, uh, so, you know, house builders are particularly suffering. Uh, interest rates go up, mortgage rates go up, yeah. less people buy houses, yeah. therefore less people can build houses. Um, so you've got certain parts that are under a phenomenal amount, uh, amount of pressures. Hence, you're seeing uh, the organisations that wanted to do modular housing uh, closing down. Yeah. Yeah, uh, legal and general leads closed down. Those yeah. sorts of uh, house builders going bankrupt. All, all of those things are, are happening because of the impact of what's happening in the, in the economy. We have suffered dramatically from 
inflation, yeah. greater inflation, you know, materials going up 20%. You know, we all talk about the oil's gone up the vast, vast amount and food's going up a vast amount. Um, it's all the raw materials. But all the raw materials have been going up large amounts. So the construction industry is pressurizing that, that sense. Interest rates go up. So if you're working on overdrafts because you've got to borrow the money, do the work, then get paid, that puts an added pressure. It's been less on infrastructure because infrastructure projects tend to be of much longer duration. So something like Hinkley Point is, you know, you know, five, 10 years, HS2, 20, 30 years. So they're more stable in terms of that. So you see some part, if you're in the infrastructure, civil engineering part, you're not having some, so much of pressure. But if you're in the housing, housing side, which is you really shorter are. cycles. That's short the cycles. Much, much, much more. more. Adversity comes quickly. Once the interest rates go up, people don't want to build houses or won't buy houses. And the mortgage situation gets confidence tough. in the then, consumer market as well yeah, and all yeah, the rest yeah, of it. And it all comes all, back all, to all, that. All of these things yeah, in Canada. It all comes back to that. We also work in uh, other areas. You're right. We, our construction's probably about 60% of what we do across the whole piece. But uh, we work in banking. We do quite a lot in banking. Okay. Uh, yeah. Increasingly more in engineering, manufacturing, and green skills. A lot, a lot in management, obviously a lot of employability skills and maths okay. and English and, and those sorts of areas, as well as uh, education and uh, and social care. So we are broader, but our big sector is construction. Yeah. Okay, so fairly yeah. diversified in terms of some yeah. of the other areas. Of, yeah. And so forth. Okay. yeah, and and that's been the route that we've continued. We've continued diversification, not just away from being purely an awarding body, but diversification of the sectors that we work in. Going back a little bit, I mean, you, you, we sort of covered it in terms of some aspects of it, you know, in terms of you, uh, your lifelong learning, you know, how you've adapted and so forth, and, you know, your, you know how you've led the organization and your sort of leadership style and, and so forth. You know, if I was a member of the team, a part of your leadership team, how would they sort of describe you as the leader? I, I mean, I, I, you know, I see you as a visionary, and I said I see you as a role model, but how would they, how would you like I, to I, think? I think the staff would, would say, I've got the vision and direction. Yeah. And they've got confidence in that vision and direction that it's built on sensible analysis thinking it through that's the way to go I, I think as we hit problems they know i will deal with them they know they can come and talk to me my door is open uh, if my door's closed it's because i'm in a meeting and i don't <laughs> want to be disturbed otherwise the door is open, is open yeah. uh, and anybody can come and talk to me i am approachable and i encourage everybody else to be approachable you know, the directors and the heads of everybody should be approachable. You know, an, an open environment where people can say what they think. And I try to create that environment and an environment where people should want to learn and develop themselves all the time. I've done that all the way through my career. I've been on training courses and CPD and all of that. Yeah. Uh, because I understand the importance of the, an organization continuing to train its people but you individually to take responsibility for training yourself or, or engaging in training and development. Um, when computers came in, uh, I was probably one of the first ones to learn how to do Excel spreadsheets, uh, or Lotus Notes as it was. And yeah. Yeah. So, so I encourage people to develop and train themselves. But it, it's an, we try to create uh, an open, a very open, transparent culture where people feel comfortable and can say things that if they're worried they can say something what is interesting in that is we have grown a lot as i said we have 26 people 12 12 years ago uh, and 200 now and there's about three people of those 26 still with That's us really, okay. yeah, so it's a big massive change and yeah. we we have 
you know, a, a fairly significant turnover each year, like, like other like businesses other business, do. Yeah. And the, the challenge I perceive is the new people coming in, come in from organizations where they're blame cultures, mm. where they, they are used and they've had 20 years of working in a, in a culture that is hide it, don't tell anybody. And they're quite a challenge then. Yeah, they're quite a challenge. Yeah, so you, as an organisation, you can try to develop a culture, yes, uh, and values. But as you get the churn of people coming in and out, they bring the culture and values of their last employers. It's maintaining that. It's maintaining that. Protecting the culture, really. It is protecting the culture. culture, And and people tend to think, oh well, I'll create this culture. It's not just about that. It's maintaining it and protecting it because it's changing every time a new member of staff comes in. They bring something good or potentially something bad with them yeah Yeah. it's it's something i wouldn't have perceived but perhaps we've grown so much and i've seen that it's uh, you know i've seen as as we say took on a completely new team recruited a whole load of new people suddenly there are subcultures not because we wanted a subculture but the people we recruited came from organizations with other cultures Maybe similar cultures, and they've created almost a subculture. That's Culture's an interesting it's thing. It's an interesting <laughs> thing, and I know you know. I know you've you've got your values that you've yeah. you've got in the office, and you live and breathe the, those values. You know, and and part of that, in terms of a, you know my personal uh, dealings and my personal experience with you, is that you actually care. You know, you you, you know, look at making a difference, and and you're very open minded. I mean, you know, part of that is the upgrade bringing in how you generally are, but uh, very open minded, very yeah. looking to say yes. You know, wherever, wherever possible, yeah. rather than you know, batting things off, and you know, you, you listen, you care. I suppose I'm passionate. Yeah. I think lots of people would say I'm passionate about about what we do. Yeah. I'm yeah. passionate about helping people to get the skills, get into employment, and develop themselves. I'm passionate about that. So, um, and, uh, uh, and I think everybody recognises that both inside the organisation and outside. It's why I keep going. It's yeah. that passion. Yeah. And again, the the empathy in terms of you know the staff as well. I, we, uh, I know the fact that you as a business supported your staff, particularly with the cost of living crisis and the utility and so forth. And we I, did because you know financial times are tough absolutely. for all of us. But we did. We gave uh, yes staff, uh, perhaps in the lower grades, all of the uh, people, yeah. people outside of the management. Uh, we gave them seven hundred and fifty pounds last winter. Three lots of twenty-five pounds. Yeah, so October, November, December, they yeah. got extra money yeah. to help with the winter field yeah. bills, and then we gave a seven percent pay rise. So for you know, the more junior staff, they probably got ten percent at the time. In inflation, was ten percent. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Just to sort of mitigate uh, mitigate that, yeah. and just to make that a little bit a little uh, bit easier on, on. What we don't do is, and I don't like, uh, is chief execs having big pay rises when. The organisation isn't having big pay rises. Uh, our pay uh, at the senior leadership team is tied to what we give staff, or it might be a bit less at times, um, but it's certainly no more than we give staff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just don't think it's good leadership as a chief executive to do a 16% pay rise, yeah, as, we, with the staff as we've are, seen, yeah, uh, uh, as happened, and staff getting 3 or 4% or 5%. That to me is just unfair. It's just unfair. It's not ethical. It's not right. It's not morally right. It's not ethically right. 
and it's not a good sign of leadership in my, in my yeah, terms. Yeah. You know, it, we'll all get 4% or uh, yeah, I'll get 3% and then we'll go 4% or whatever, but I shouldn't be trying to take 16% yeah. when I'm telling everybody else they've yeah. got, got a stomach for. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think that's right. I mean, you touched, touched on it as well when you're talking about COVID, the fact that the SLT team took a cut for yeah. a little bit longer than, than the yeah. others as well. So that was a sacrifice to show the way leading. The yeah, fact that, you yeah, know yeah, yeah. Le- Leadership is about leading. Yeah. It, it, yes, uh, but, and, and it's leading, leading by example. By example isn't yeah. it? That's important, and I think I think we do do that. I think the staff know that. Uh, there's something that was good that came out of COVID, uh, which we've kept up and everybody likes. I do a monthly briefing to staff. It's about 45 minutes. I now do that to our uh, EPA assessors as well. And we just let everybody in the company know what's happening. So once a month, there'll be a briefing about what's happening. We've won this contract. This is happening. Changes here. Whatever just a financial performance is good. Or yeah, mm-hmm. we've had this issue with people. Do, or do people dial in, or how, how does that they work? They dial in on, yeah. teams. on teams, or, or they come into a meeting room like this. And we started that in COVID, and the reason we did that was we had to put at one stage nearly 50% of our people were on furlough Furlough, because colleges just stopped, you know, everything stopped. So we we had to put them on furlough, but we had some people still operating because we worked in construction. Construction sites came back quite quickly. So there's a bit of the business needs to keep going and a bit of it needs to go into mothball until uh, until, until that happens. So uh, we thought, well, how do we keep them engaged? If somebody's going to be out of the business for, for a m- while, months, yeah. and, well, in the early days, do, nobody do, knew. It could be a year. You know, so you, how do we stay in touch? How do, how we, do we stay in touch? touch? So we introduced the monthly briefings in, in that period. They become so sort of liked and successful, we keep them going. And they, yeah. they are useful to make sure everybody's up to speed with yeah. where, where we are. But another thing we did in COVID is we rotated people in and out of the office of, of, out of furlough oh, furlough. oh okay so let's say there were three people in a team that were doing a similar job then one would be furloughed one month another one another oh, month okay. another. So, okay, so so not everybody was getting the same pain of furlough okay. it wasn't possible in all cases and some people there's one person did that job and that was that but yeah. we tried to mitigate some of the what we perceived as the negative things that furlough created and then that seemed to work we now uh, hybrid work in three days a week in the office or out on business, you know, yeah, some people's well, jobs yeah. Uh, yeah. out on business, aren't out, they? Out on the field, yeah. yeah. So a couple of days at home, three days in the office or out in the field uh, as, as necessary. That's worked really well for us. I think staff in, uh, appreciate it. It means if you're traveling to work less, you're use, spending less on petrol or whatever. Yeah. So it, one, it saves you a bit of money, but two, it's a bit of a contribution towards the, sustainability, uh, yeah, sustainability and, whatever, yeah. and, and net zero. So yeah. uh, that was a good thing that came out of COVID, I think. Yeah, a much more flexible working. I don't travel uh, on trains. I used to be going to London one day a week yeah, for a meeting. Yeah. Well, I don't do that now. I just have a Teams meeting with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think there's some positives that yeah. sort of came out. It yeah. really pushed us into using the new technology in a way That's which right. I might have taken 10 years. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, we yeah. were all talking about it. Yeah, Nobody yeah. was doing That's it. That's right. Yeah. I didn't do a Teams call until until COVID arrived. I mean, yeah. I wasn't doing Zoom or Teams That's, call. That's the same. All my meetings were face-to-face. Yeah. I, I would yeah. travel for yeah. a meeting. I wouldn't, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't we do were doing the same. Odd Zoom things. I, yeah. we, did, we did do a lot of Zoom because it was more Zoom before COVID. Teams yeah. really took off with COVID uh, abroad. Okay. Yeah, so when you're talking to people in India yeah, really, um, yeah. or, or the Gulf or um, Greece or wherever, it was Zoom. So it wasn't utterly new, but of course we 
we had to go over to that completely, didn't we? And operate in a completely different way. But that's been a good thing. I wish we'd not gone through COVID, obviously. I think nobody, nobody yeah. really wants to have gone through that. But there are some positive things that have come out of that. Okay. Yeah. I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the future as part of sort of winding our, our conversation down a little bit about in terms of your yourself as well, in terms of your personal ambition, and as well as obviously the NOC, NOCN group. And what, what does that look like in terms of? I think if we go, we go forward, I will stay with NOCN until I retire. That's my, my current plan. Your Some years yeah. away. Yeah. I've got a plan with the with the board as to what we're going to do. We will continue to diversify and grow. And that diversification will be into other sectors. Yeah. It will be into other products that, that support our charitable objectives. So we'll do different things but support the objectives and grow abroad, yes, internationally. We still will remain an awarding organization, but whereas, as I said, 95% of our work six years ago was an awarding, and now it's about 60-odd percent, we might end up in a situation where we're 60% not awarding body, yeah. 40% awarding flip, body. Flip it out. And from zero, when I came here, no work abroad whatsoever. You know, we could be in a situation, you know, three, four, five years' time, uh, where maybe half our work is abroad. You know, so that's the sort of shape that we're sort of heading towards in NOCN. Some words of advice if, if for somebody starting off, say, their career in, in management or their first job in, in a management or leadership role, any sort of words of advice. And then I'm going to ask you for some words of advice uh, if, uh, say, we had the uh, the government listening to the, to this, what would you say to them in terms of what what they've got right and what they need to do more often? Yeah. Uh, I think your first role in management, actually go on some of the training courses yeah. and make sure you know even simple basic stuff like how to recruit people, how to c- uh, cope with si- sickness absence, how to handle somebody that won't do what you want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the first challenge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think get some training, but also get a mentor. And don't feel afraid of asking the question because your boss will probably be more than happy to help you yeah. and guide you in truth. But don't go, oh, God, I'm, I've been promoted. I mustn't show I can't do the job. I'd just be open. Yeah. And uh, you know, everybody knows it's your first time as a supervisor, or whatever, yeah. or an assistant manager, whatever, yeah. whatever the role is. And they will all know they've been through that. Yeah. So, so um, make sure you've got some training. Don't duck the issues. Go and ask people if you're not sure. Some of those, they're simple things, aren't so they? Nuggets, yeah. But the nuggets of wisdom, and, and it's, it's, it's a, lot of the, a lot of the time, it's those things that people miss. And yeah, make, they do. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, people can't admit they don't know. And I don't know everything. Yeah. You, know? you could say, oh, I'm the chief executive, must know everything. No, I don't. You know, I need to go and ask. If, if I need advice, I go and get it. And yeah. I listen to it, yeah. yes. Um, so you know, not everybody knows everybody, everything. So don't mm. feel worried about that. Your, your uh, words of wisdom to policymakers, to government? Pub- in, in, terms of, in terms of government, I want to see a fundamental rebuild of the skill system so that it is pan-UK and okay. it's at an international standard okay. so that our people can work abroad, our companies who employ our people can be seen as being world-leading. So I want a skill system that, that achieves that but is easy and simple to operate and embraces what employers actually need and trust employers more. There is this sort of feeling that Whitehall knows best 
And yes, I heard what the employer said, but they were wrong. You know, we're, we're going to do this. And I've seen quite a lot of that in, in the last two or three years. That seems to have grown a bit, which is uh, so I think they need to trust and work with employers uh, and engage with employers much more strongly and design a new skill system. I wouldn't want to see us throw out some of the good work we've done with apprenticeship standards, including degree apprenticeship standards. I think we wish we want to keep some bits of the T levels, but perhaps be more realistic that it was they're never going to be the big thing. I want them also to focus on the type of training and micro training and competency training that is needed for the workforce and for upskilling and focus on the development of our workforce, not just focus on the new entrants, to put as much effort into working with industry to make sure we've got the net zero workforce of 2030 and they know what they're doing and they're world beating. So I'd like to see change, but I'd like to see that through adapting what we've done, not throw everything out and start again. I think I think it does need organisational change within government. I think that does need that. But I'd like a much more, a bigger, more flexible change in the system and a move away from it's got to be big, massive programmes. takes us five years to develop them and implement them, and then we won't change it for another five years. That's the death knell. If we stick with that, our economy will be in trouble. Yeah, lean, agile, responsive. Yeah, much uh, more agile. More, more adaptable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah, a, a revolution in thinking okay. in Whitehall. Okay. Yeah, well, in government, not just Whitehall. You know, you've got the devolved administrations as well. Um, I'd like to th- a, a complete rethink. Some yeah. strong, powerful words yeah. coming from a lot of wisdom and, and strength within you know within. within but know. keep what's good. Yeah, the trouble with a lot of policy reform is change, throw everything out. Change not for the change of for the sake of the changes. Yeah. And they know, don't keep change what, what you need. Yeah. And, yeah. and just refine and adapt and continuously grow. Yeah, yeah. Start Fantastic. moving. Yeah, start, start that change. Fantastic. Yeah. Strong, powerful words there, Graham. I just want to thank you again, once again, for all your time and commitment and support that you've given, uh, not just today, but to the Multicultural Apprenticeship uh, Alliance, Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards, to the cause of social mobility, to the cause yeah. of diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, you know, you live and breathe that and you 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 know you're a strong advocate a strong ambassador yeah. a strong patron for the sector and i thank you for for that and i thank you for your warmth your kindness well, this is this is, this is a welsh kid yeah born in the bedroom of a council house thank you and i've had that social mobility and i want others to have it yeah thank you graham thank, thank you, you so much much thank appreciate you. that thank you Thank you to Graham Hastings Evans, CEO of the NOCN Group, for his time and insight. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 61 other Canny Conversations podcast episodes out there. And you can listen to all those past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. We'd also like you to review, subscribe and follow the podcast and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcasts.co.uk or go to SAF's website. That's safras.co.uk. Safras has also written a series of easy to follow business books, Canny Bites. These are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash by the book. Next week, Saf will be in conversation with Viran Patel from the Open University. So until then, 
Have a good week. This is a 1386 audio production. 